I screamed like a baby, but no more tears would come. I had already cried them all. The taste of the soil in my mouth. As Anya and his lieutenant rained more blows down on me. They had tied me like a captured animal's arm yanked behind my back with a rope cinch tied around my elbow and lashes to my bound ankle. The arrangement was so extreme, I worried my shoulder bone, my crack or my arm might be pulled from the socket. As I lay face down in the dirt under the African sun, my skin slots off like wet paper where the coarse rope sewed through it. At that moment, there was nothing in my world other than total, endless, blinding pain. Anyang wasn't done with me yet, though. He used to take the suffering up a notch or two by rubbing chili powder into the welts and cut he inflicted. Sometimes the pain would cause me to pass out. Other time, I searched for some sign of compassion, but there was nothing. Just a mask of brutality. It's hard to believe we were just kids. Anyang was 16 and I was small, skinny, and barely 13 years old. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis and today we're joined by a Sudanese-Australian actor and youth volunteer, Ayik Shut Deng. You may remember Ayik from the SBS reality program Look Me in the Eye, where he opened up about his experiences as a child soldier in the Sudanese Civil War of the early to mid-90s and came face-to-face with his childhood tormentor. He's now written The Lost Boy, Tales of a Child Soldier, which recounts in unflinching detail his brutal childhood, the trauma that followed him into adulthood, and how he overcame it all to be the man that he is today. Eik, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, Max. Thank you. So how did the idea to to write a book based on your life come about? How did you get into that? Well, after I came face-to-face with Anyang on... uh, on that show on SBS, Look Me in the Eye. It sort of like opened the door for me because after the show and when I forgive, after I forgave Anyang and I, I felt good that I let go and then the opportunity of a book came up and I thought, okay, when I was on the show, it was just me and Anyang, which was just that 5% of my life mm. was with Anyang during the training. But the rest of my life, you know, the other 95%, I spent it somewhere. So I thought I might as well just talk about all the things that that I kept to myself since I came here. And that yeah. might help me move on with my life. And, and that's what I did. And when you were writing the book with, with Craig Henderson, what was that like? Uh, when we were writing the book, I went back to my childhood age when I was in the rebel because most of the time when we were working on the book, there was some part that used to get me very emotional, you know, and so it was hard 
honestly. It was hard writing the book again because I went back to the time I was trained. That's what I did. Mm. So there'll, there'll be moments when there's tears and there'll be moments where, where I laugh because it wasn't just about the war. There are some funny, silly things that I've done in the war that when I look back, I can just laugh about it. And, and, the, and, and there are moments when I look back, tears come straight away. You know what I mean? So it was hard. It was like reliving my life all over again. And how did Craig Henderson um, help in that process of writing the book? What role did he play? Oh, Craig Henderson helped me in many different ways, you know, working on the book, writing the book. And also when he was questioning me every time, whenever we talk about something that had killing in it, when he sees that, I'm sort of like getting emotional. He'll pull out of that. He'll come mm. up with another topic. So, okay, let's talk about this. Let's leave that now. And because Craig, he's a funny guy. He's got that Aussie humor. He yeah. doesn't just, you know, he'll just say, fuck, let's talk about this. Fuck, <laughs> let's talk about that. I say, all right, fuck it then. Let's do this. Mm. And that's how we just cope with it. We're just having a laugh because of his humor. It helped me a lot. In in telling the story of this kind of brutal part of your life, were you ever worried that it might some parts might be too shocking for for people to read? Yeah, of course. There's a lot of shocking, you know, part in that book, and that's why I just said if if I if I get to tell my story, it might help other people understand life a bit more better than they do. Because you know, first world problem, my iPhone is broken. Mm. That's I came from where if I walk down the street or down the bush, I can find a dead body there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But here, you hit my car. It's a big deal. My dog's been run over. Yeah. It's a big deal, which I understand now because I sort of fit in this life right now. When I first came here, there was a lady in Toowoomba. I think her dog was ran over by a car, and she was just crying, making this big scene, and I'm thinking, when I was back home, I go to the bush, I'll find a dead body during mm. the war. So many dead people, and no one will even cry. And this lady's crying about a dog? Well, that was years back then. Now, if you put me in her shoes, I'll do the same thing. I'll yeah. cry if I see the dog getting run over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a big difference between worlds. I had, yeah, I had a different, you know, and I was still living my past back then. But now I'm sort of, I'm living fully here in Australia. So I'm mm. sort of trying to fit in. Well, um, before we focus on the book a bit more, would you be able to give our listeners a brief history of how, of the conflict in Sudan that you were involved in? Well, you know, the war started when I was very young. Mm. So I didn't know much. All I knew, the war was just between Muslim and, which is the North and South, which is us which is Dinka and Lutuka, all these different tribes mm. on south. So that's all I knew about the war. I didn't know when it first started, you know, because I didn't go to school to study that. So I didn't know about it. But when yeah. the war started in 83, which is the war that I ended up getting involved into, that's when I realized, okay, the wars between, which is uh, Muslim and us. A lot of South Sudanese back then in the 80s, they weren't Christian. Some of them believe in different God. It might mm. be... A goat, because my mother believed in rattlesnake. You see, all that sort of, at the time, that's before she became Christian. Now she's Christian. But back in the 80s, my mother used to believe in snake. 
It was their God. So when the war started, I was just going with the flow as a kid. And I said, okay, people are fighting. I'll go and get a gun and fight as well. And you mentioned the, the Dinka group, which is the tribe that you grew up in. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what life was like in the Dinka tribe when you were a child? All I remember, I was just, you know, taking care of you, looking after your cattle. Your mm. cattle, so you, th- that's your wealth, you know? And that's what we Dinka, we don't kill our cows. We, br- we breed them. The only time we kill a cow is when someone died or when there's a wedding. That's the only time we're trying to slaughter a cow. Apart from yeah. that, we, 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 just, we just breed them. We just breed them and just look after them, you know? The more cow you have, that mean that you are wealthy. And th- th- that was the Dinka life that I started in. So when I was a little boy, I even had my own little bull. I had a bull that I was, I used to make songs about him. And then before, before I knew it, that bull died. And they just, my heart was just shattered that my bull died. And, and straight away, the war followed. So from the bull, I went to the gun. Hmm. Well, you, you said how you wanted to join the, um, the SPLA, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, um, to, to fight the Arabs. So you weren't forced to join. You willingly joined. What do you think might have happened to you at that time if you didn't go and join the army yourself? If I didn't join, I probably would have been forced to join hmm. anyway. Either way, I would have still be part of the SPLA. But because I volunteer first, I went in there, and then after a few months, I said, nah, that's enough. I can't handle it. Yeah. And then I took off, I ran. And then from there, they never stopped looking for me. And I ran that many times. I can't even, I couldn't keep a track of it. I lost track of how many times I ran. After your, your training, you, you did engage in some combat, but you were never directly on the front line thanks to your sister's connections to the SPLA. If you didn't have that kind of protection and you did experience front line combat, do you think you would still be alive today? No, no, no. If I didn't have some of my family as leaders in the rebel, I would have been sent to the front line, and only God knows if I would have lived or not, because I lost a lot of friends, a lot of child soldiers I was trained with. They didn't have family that will take them, put them somewhere, like what my auntie did to me. So they went straight away. As soon as they finished training, they were deployed to the war. And some of them never came back. Even coming to Australia, too, is because of my sister, because if my sister wasn't there, there's no way I would have been here. There's no way my brothers or my sister would have been here. Australia is because of her. Do you know what I mean? So you always get, if you don't have anyone up there on that rank in the rebel, then you have nowhere to go. You just got to fight until you die or with a bit of luck, you might live. Yeah. Well, your, your way out of the, the conflict in Sudan was when you and your family were allowed passage to Nairobi in Kenya, thanks to your sister. How do you think your life may have panned out if you weren't able to leave Sudan. You know, if I if I didn't come here, I would have died. And the reason is, I was a very angry little child soldier when I was in there. Mm-hmm. I pulled guns on anyone. I even pulled grenade on people. Yeah. And these are the people with me. People 
who are rebel as well. It's like Your friends, a, yeah. Yeah, my friends. And if somebody is annoyed me, I'll just walk to the room and pull a gun because I didn't care. People used to just look at me and say, oh, come on, put it down, put it down. Now you put the gun down. What do you think you're doing? And I'll just stand there. Later on, I just unload my gun, put the bullet back in the magazine and just have a seat. Why do you think you were, you were acting in such an angry and spontaneous way back in those days? I think it's because of what I went through during the training. I just thought, because when I was getting trained with other child soldiers, all I wanted to do was just to make sure I got my gun. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to finish the training and get given a gun. And then as soon as they gave me a gun, oh, I just felt like, okay, I got 30 bullets in my magazine plus another three magazine on the side and then one bullet in the chamber. So I just felt so good, so mm. good that anyone play with me, I'm, I, I'll shoot them. But something hold me back. There was a, mo- a few moments when I look back now and say, if I got my hand on that gun at that time, I swear to God, I would have killed someone. But something always happened to me. Yeah. Something come and just pull me back. Well, you and your family were finally granted asylum to Australia in 1996, and you moved to Toowoomba in Queensland. What was the biggest shock to you and your family going from Sudan to Queensland and Australia? The biggest shock was, man, I can eat like this every day and I'm full. Because there's no way I can tell you in Africa to eat for a week. I've never had that. But when I came in... It was just a day after day. You just got to eat. You just got to eat the meat, everything. Because you know where we come from. Meat is like a luxury thing. It's hard mm. to get. Because you didn't kill your cattle. Yeah. We didn't kill our cattle. So you come here, you walk down the road, you can bring a whole cow if you want. And we just came from Africa. All we're eating is just meat every single day. But it, it, it didn't last long in my mind for me because the second year, I start having nightmares, mm. you know, for, exa- for example, I, I, I used to feel like in my, in my dream that I've been shot and all I can hear is just a fly buzzing around me, bzzz, buzzing around my rotten body. And then I'll just struggle to open my eye. But as soon as I open my eyes, it's around four o'clock and all I can hear is just a traffic down the road cars going and I thought okay I just explained the dream my own way like okay that mean that the, the the traffic down the road was like a fly but mm. I, was, I, was, I used to get shot at in Africa so that happened in the dream but the flies is the traffic you know what I mean and then yeah, yeah. My, not, my, my daydream my night dream turn into daydreams but the daydream when it's not dreaming it's not dreaming it's just actually happening to me so if I'm in the kitchen with this big tray of meat, I'm cutting meat. I've got to cook a stew, lentil stew with lamb and all that. So I have meat in front of me, maybe just say four kilos or five kilos sitting in front of me because there were 12 of us, 12 of us mm. in the family. And I have to cook for everyone there. So I have these five kilos in front of me and I have to cut that meat. And then when I start cutting into it, something would tell me in my head, hey, you like you cutting your nephew and nieces. And I'm here, I'm staring at the meat and this little thing telling me in my mind, oh, you're cutting your nephew. So what I do, I just stab the knife 
in the meet and I run to the park. I just sit there and I'll just think. Sometimes I used to cry until then when my nephew started running to the park and come toward me, I, you know, I wipe my face pretty quick before they know what's happening. You know, so I kept everything to myself because I never wanted to talk to them. Because if I go and tell my sister, he says, oh, you're just going mental. You mentioned that yeah, mental illness was seen as a, as a kind of weakness in the Dinka tribe, and that, that's why you didn't you never talk to your family about what you were feeling. It's, it's all of us. My, my, my younger brother, he was in the rebel too. He lived in Toowoomba now. He never, he never seen a, a counsellor or a psychiatrist, never. Yeah. I don't know how, how, how he kept himself so how he kept himself together. I can't see any sign of a mental illness in him. I don't see that. But inside there, there is something that just bothering him. But he just can't talk about it. After you came to Australia, we can, we can look back and see that you were suffering from PTSD. But when you tried to seek help for what you were experiencing, you were incorrectly diagnosed with schizophrenia and placed on antipsychotic medication. Do you know why the doctors seemed to think that you were schizophrenic? You know, my English wasn't as good, good as it is right now, you know. And I used to think that maybe I didn't explain myself pretty well to the, to yeah. the doctor or to the psychiatrist. That's what I used to think. But at the time I went there, I, I never seen a psychiatrist, never saw mm. one before. Until in 2002, my girlfriend and I, we broke up. So I was a bit sad. I was a bit down. And what happened was I started hanging out with wrong people. They said, have a beer. You'll be all right. Oh, have 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 a bong. You'll be all right. Just have a mm-hmm. little smoke of weed. You'll be all right. You forget about that. And so I probably had smoked a little weed here. And then by the time I went to see a psychiatrist, they probably asked me, yeah, what's wrong? Yeah, I broke up with my girlfriend. Is that all? Yeah, that's what got me. There's nothing because I never talk about my past, you know. Because yeah. I used to think that everybody got their problems. So I'm gonna gonna tell. I'm not gonna go there and tell. Yeah, yeah, I was in the war and this happened to me. This happened to me. No, people here got their own problem too. So I used to think that it's not a big deal. Whatever I went through in the war is not a big deal. The big problem I have now. My girlfriend left me, and now this is the biggest problem I have. And then when the psychiatrist asked me, okay, have you been smoking weed? Oh, yeah, a little bit. You've been drinking? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, tell me a little bit about, your, about yourself, about your background. Where you come from? I'm Sudanese. I used to be a boy soldier, and that's it. And that's it. That's what I used to tell people because there's mm. nothing. I didn't want any treatment. Maybe I was diagnosed from what I said that I, I smoke a bit of pot. Maybe that's why he said, okay, he's a schizophrenia. Probably. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. During this time, because of the, the antipsychotic medication and the fact that you weren't being treated for the PTSD, you're engaging in a lot of kind of risk-taking behaviour. Why do you think you were living so recklessly? Oh, because, you know, when I was put on medication and then I, I I felt like I had no life because mm. all you do, you, you just a night you take medication. In the morning, you do the same thing. And, and all they do, they just numb you. That, that's what they do. And all of a sudden, you know, connected with wrong people, people who are just 
on medication as well or doing some hanging out with the wrong crowd, mm. uh, using medication and illegal drugs at the same time. I think that my turnaround came when the mother of my child left me. My little boy was born, my little son was born 2006. And then 2008, uh, me and my ex-girlfriend, the mother of my child, we separated. And then from there, because I love her so much and I love my child, and I thought, okay, I need to change. Because she used to tell me, you need to get a job. And I said, yeah, I will get a job when I get better. This is what the doctor said I should take. This is what the psychiatrist said I should take. Take medication mm -hmm. and you'll get better. And then she said, well, you've been taking them since 2002. Now it's 2008 and you're still not getting better. And at the time I was using, I was using illegal drugs, smoking pot here and there. So at the time, I just stopped using drugs. And from there, after I stopped using drugs, I started thinking, I need to stop using medication as well because these medications are not helping me. I've been on them now since 2002. Now it's 2008. They're not helping. And then yeah. I went on to keep taking them until 2010. And that's when I stopped because I knew I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't get any better with them on, so I just stopped taking them. And so it took you, you, you talk about in the book how it took you like two or three years to, to fully get off that medication. Yeah, to, to, for my body to, to, to be me again because yeah. when, when the first time I stopped, it didn't help. You know, I couldn't sleep, you know, because the body always just wait for the tablet and then mm. a bit of water. I'll be lying down, my body's dead, but the brain is just awake because it's waiting for that tablet i just said no nah, i refuse you know there was a time when I, I used to cry at night time i'll just hit the wall i hit the couch everything i'll just bang everything begging for for for, for sleep i just wanted mm. to sleep first i used to ask to sleep for one hour one hour i used the first thing i used to ask for please god let me sleep for one hour if i sleep for one hour i'll be happy and then over the months it just it just got better can sleep one hour, then two hours, then three hours, then four hours. You know, over the years, you know, I got better. After you confronted Anyang on the SBS program and forgave him, what was your relationship with him like after that? After that on the show, we ended up catching up. I even mm. introduced my son to him. I took my son to him. And then a few weeks later, I went there and spent a week with him. I stayed at his place for a week at the time he wasn't living with his wife he was yeah. living with one of his cousin so what i did there i just went there for a full week i go to work and after work i drive there and sleep over there because there was only three of us me him and his cousin mm. so i just wanted to get to know him better as a person and we had a little chat about what he used to do to me and saying how do you feel nice man i'm really sorry I'm really sorry. I wasn't me myself, you know. I just had to do what I had to do because I was worried about those who were over me, the big bosses, Yeah. you know, because he told me that he was worried what might happen to him at the time. So he had to just do what he had to do. And uh, and I, I told him, I said, young man, I said, young, you know, you are lucky, my brother, because, you know, you've changed, you know, you've got a beautiful family, you got you know, beautiful grandkids and, you know, people change in life. And I told him that 
Australia has taught me so much. Australia taught me to forgive. Australia taught me to say sorry, which I never do. And I told him that if it wasn't, if it wasn't Australia, man, you'd be dead. And I wouldn't even be here myself because if I kill him, something will happen to me. I, say, I told him that we're both lucky. Australia saved us both. I'm better now because, you know, seeking help. Because if I didn't seek help, this thing in me would just blow up like a bomb. Yeah. Because it's a ticking bomb. It's, it's in there. Like I said, if I didn't come face to face with him, you know, only God knows what would happen to Anyang, you know. Because I still got the memories. I forgive him, but I'll never forget what he did to me and what yeah. he did to our child soldiers. My best friend that he used to torture me with committed suicide in 2002. And he's the guy that Anyang used to beat up. He used to tie him up like he tied me up. Because every time I used to escape from the training, I escaped with this guy. His name was Daniel. Daniel, Dan, Daniel Deng. So I even named myself after him. Because yeah. he was better. He was baptized before me in the rebel. And then after he told me, yeah, my name is Daniel. I was baptized. I said, okay, I want to be called Daniel as well. So I was baptized after him, you know, just like him. It wasn't because of that Daniel that was thrown in the den. As the Bible said, no, I got the name Daniel because of my best friend who committed suicide. Well, following all of that, you now find work as an actor and also volunteering at your local PCYC. Are you able to tell us a little bit about uh, about what you're doing nowadays? I try to get into acting, you know. You know, acting is it's a hard industry in, in Australia anyway, you know. Mm. And so, but they make a lot of, uh, when, when, when they make movies here down the Gold Coast, the only movies that I can get into, like American. Like, you know, I've yeah. been in a few you know, even the Pommy movie, In Between Us Two, I've been in that one. Scooby-Doo, I was in that movie. San Andreas, I was in that. Thor Ragnarok, Aquaman. So I've been in a few movies, but there's there's no role. There's nothing big, you know, no speaking role. It's just extra work, you know. But the dream mm. is to the dream is to have to 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 have, to have a speaking role. You know, that's what every actor wants, just to have a speaking role. It doesn't matter how big the role is or small it is, it's still a role. And that's what I want. That's, that's, that's the next thing that I wanted to achieve, to just to have a role in a film. It'd be just fulfilling, you know? Because the first time I watched a movie, I was in The Rebel. And uh, the TV was as big as my crave. And the TV was about... 15 meters to 20 meters away from me and we were in the jungle in the Ethiopian jungle and the power for, for to for the tv was from a little generator and they put the tv to the max it was black and white as well and the movie was commander mm, that was the Arnold first movie ever watched in my life that was the first yeah. movie ever watched in my life and then i was just thinking look at this white guy he's the biggest white guy i've ever seen in my life i've never seen a black man like that in my whole life that that looked like arnold till day the first time i watched a movie on that Minecraft tv i'll call it Minecraft tv and it was black this guy jumped out of the plane and landed on his feet in a swamp and no scratch nothing how does he do that do you know what i mean and then when i came here i realized there's something called acting. I said, what is that? Where you pretend. 
I said, well, the first movie I watched, the guy didn't pretend. He was doing it for real, saying, nah, he did. I said, oh, well, then I just went to work as an extra. And that's how I started. And from there, I got into, I played my first role in 2017 as a, 2018, I think, as an actor. And I play, real me, I play a refugee coming from Indonesia to Australia on a boat, on a TV series called Safe Harbour. That was mm. my first role. What kind of stuff do you do um, with your volunteer work at the PCYC? I just, whenever they need me, yeah, so I go and work with them. I just work around the gym. And at the same time, too, uh, there's uh, one police officer there. He's, he's, the, he's the manager of PCYC. Uh, he told me a while ago, he said, Ayik, I wanted you to, to be able to get your blue card so you can work with young people. Mm. And that's what I'm working on right now. I want to get my blue card and be able to, uh, to work with, uh, with community, be able to work with young people help them, those who are lost, those who got alcohol problem, those who go to jail and come out. I, I want to be able to, to help them. And also, I want to be the best father I can to my children. Yeah, you know, I've got children. I've got a 13 and a half years old, my little son, who is at the age when I first joined uh, the rebel. So he's at that age when I first joined. When I look at him now, I say, you can you can carry an AK-47 and you will shoot it better than me because he looked more healthier than me mm. when I was able. Do you know what I mean? And I've got a 16-month-old daughter. And, yeah, they're the people that I wanted to live for. I want to live happy and die happy in, the, in this country. That's it. I don't want to die violently because if, if I was in Africa, I would have died like that, violently. But now I'll die, like, happy well, um, for my final question, early in the book, you talked about how when you were a child in the Dinka tribe, you had dreams of being a, a Dinka singer. Um, since then, now that you've kind of settled into your life in Australia, have you tried to rekindle your, your dream of being a Dinka singer? I made myself a guitar. You made a guitar? Yeah, which is it's a, it's called a baba. It's a traditional a thing. It came from north, which is Arab. I made one here and I do play it every now and then and I sing Dinka songs. I, I learned how to play it when I was in the Rebel. So I made one here and every now and then I, I play that. The, the, the thing is, with the Dinka one, I, I wanted to have cows, cattle. I want to have cows and make my song about my cows, you know, or mm. a beautiful girl that I like. That, that's what I wanted to do. I can't do it here. I can't do it in Australia. This is a different lifestyle. I'm not going to sing about girls in Dinka, even though most of my girlfriend in the past were white. So if I go and sing to them in Dinka, they'll probably think, what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> yeah. So it'll be just something different, you know? So, yeah. Aik, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Max. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me here.